please join me in welcoming to UMass Walida Imarisha. Hello, how are y'all doing? Very excited to be here. I brought the rain with me, I'm sorry, Portland rain. Um, I'm, I'm excited to be here and to nerd out with y'all tonight, so we're gonna get into it. Um, so I've, I've started uh, just starting presentations uh, with some music, and so uh, I wanted to share Gabriel Teodros' song, Letter to Our Unborn, and Gabriel is an incredible uh, MC, organizer, visionary from Seattle. He's also a contributor to Octavia's Brood. He's also creating like hip-hop, space opera, sci-fi epics. So y'all, if you don't know, you need to know, all right? So. Love in the Age of Apocalypse uh, feels very, very appropriate. So um, I listen to that. I listen to that song often. Gabriel has a new album out called History Rhymes If It Doesn't Repeat. So that's been like continual playlist medicine. So just check it out. 
Uh, and you'll also hear from Gabriel momentarily because he is in the video I'm about to play. Um, but I, uh, so I am Walida Imarisha, co-editor of Octavia's Brood, science fiction stories from social justice movements along with Adrienne Marie Brown. And Octavia's Brood is fantastical stories written by organizers, activists, and change makers. So we have 20 short stories and two essays. Um, and by fantastical, I mean horror, science fiction, fantasy, alternative timeline, magical realism, you know, weird stuff, basically. Uh, and our idea was to have folks who maybe had never written science fiction before. The majority of our writers had never written science fiction, uh, but we knew they were incredible writers and we knew that they uh, were holding these new worlds inside of them because they are organizers, activists, and change makers in the world. Uh, so I wanted to just uh, start with playing a video so I can bring their voices into the room because Octavia's Brood is really a collaborative project. So I like to bring as many of my folks with me as I can. So my sci-fi story is, is the kind that I've, I've wanted to read from Ethiopia for a long time. I, I hope it's the kind of thing that will inspire other Ethiopian writers and African writers to both um, reclaim history that's been buried while at the same time imagining different futures. So I tried to do both in the story. Yeah, so it's inspired by this picture, which is the St. Georges Church in La Bibella. And it kind of looks like a spaceport to me. So I reimagined um, this temple as a spaceport. And I reimagined the life of La Bibella. And he's a time traveler. And I talk about kind of how he time travels how they had all these technological advancements like several centuries ago. I um, have been thinking a lot about and trying to process my, like an emotional reaction to the hunger strikes in Guantanamo and like what it means to have been imprisoning people without charge, without reason for so long and that they are, you know, that if it's not freedom, it's I'm going to starve to death. And what that means, and I think that it's very hard for me to process that that reality and that feeling so much so powerless around it. So in my mind, I have created um, an archipelago with Island Prison. What's happening with Guantanamo is that there is history and story that's untold and that there is so much power in story and really long memory and that my dad used to call the long memory the most dangerous idea in America. And that resonates with me around these current issues of like, if people knew the long memory, if they knew the full history, they would know that this is not okay and this is wrong. And so exploring that through a fictional fantasy world is where I'm going. Basically a short story where it's, you know, my granddaughter, who's also a psychic intuitive abuse survivor organizer, um, is living in the apocalypse in like the flooded remains of the San Francisco Bay Area. and all these grandchildren of those of us who are doing somatics in 2013 have honed their psychic abilities and are using it to like interact with and heal planetary existence. My story is about, it's about time travel through intellectual practice. It's like, do we time travel through our reading, through our writing, through our thinking? Are we actually receiving messages from and sending messages to people who lived in different generations? through the way we use language. So those were just a few of the amazing writers in the collection. And again, um, I think 
everyone in there had not written a science fiction story before. And in fact, when we sent emails to some of the people on our list, they wrote back and they were like, I think you might have sent this to the wrong, like, Leah in your address book because I don't write science fiction. We're like, yes, that's why we want you. Um, because Adrian and I firmly believed that uh, these were the folks that we wanted to be using imagination to think about the future, to think about how we could do things differently, because the, the premise of Octavia's Brood is that all organizing is science fiction. So that every time we imagine a world without poverty, a world without prisons, without borders, without oppression, that's science fiction, because we've never seen that world. But it is incredibly important to recognize that we can't build what we can't imagine. So our movements for change desperately need imaginative spaces like science fiction that not only allow us to throw out everything we're told is realistic, but actually demand it of us. We actually have to be incredibly unrealistic in our dreams and our demands for change because that's the only way we're going to move towards true liberation. It's important to know historically all real deep substantive social change was considered to be an impossibility. People were told again and again and again as they struggled, this will never happen. What you want is a fantasy, it's science fiction. And those folks rejected that entirely and said, if these are impossible dreams, then we will dream these impossible dreams and we will change the entire world if necessary to make it, to make it real. And that's exactly what they did. And that is the, the, the legacy, the responsibility, the right and the privilege that we all have to dream impossible and unrealistic dreams of better futures and then to make them our and folks' lived realities coming forward. And the space of imagination is so key in that. And I wanted to share this quote by Ursula K. Le Guin, who is, was an incredible um, visionary science fiction writer, someone who shaped so much of me. And this is a quote from her 2014 National Book Award speech where she says, we live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. And I, you know, I feel like, as always, I'm really like, I'm like, thank you, Ursula. Ursula taught me, um, you know, that really encapsulating that we can change anything. I think systems of power tell us that there is nothing else beyond them, right? There's nothing beyond the current border system. There's nothing beyond the current prison system. There's nothing beyond the current healthcare system. We need these things. They have always been there. We need them to be safe, to live. We can tinker with them, but we can't change them fundamentally, and we certainly can't dismantle them and replace them. And this quote, I think, is so important to remember. Nothing built by humans has always been here, and it doesn't always have to be here. And the minute we can step beyond what we're told is possible is the minute that we can actually begin to start building those new worlds that we dream of. So really to recognize that once the imagination is unshackled, liberation is truly limitless. So much time is spent uh, enacting control around our minds by systems of power because the, the reality is they know that once the, the imagination is decolonized, that is the first and most de dangerous decolonization process because it can lead to every other decolonization and liberation process. And so that's 
part of, well, I was gonna say that's part of why I'm a nerd. I'm, I've just been a nerd like my whole life, like, so I'm not gonna lie, <laughs> pretend like it's a noble cause. Like, I'm not new to this, y'all, <laughs> right? Um, I, I taught myself Klingonese in junior high, so I got this. But, <laughs> you know, but I think uh, it has been incredibly powerful for me to be able to see the, the radical politics and organizing that I do and to recognize not only are there connections with science fiction, this, this genre and this space that I've loved so much, but they, they absolutely need one another. Science fiction needs social change to keep it accountable and to give it a soul. And social change needs science fiction to give it a future and to give it an imagination. And so I'm saying science fiction a lot, but uh, when I started doing this work, I very quickly realized there might need to be some, another term, some shorthand, because uh, so many of the films that come out are, are science fiction blockbusters, the books that folks are reading, and science fiction is a genre, it's a tool, it's not inherently progressive, it has in fact been used in incredibly repressive and regressive ways uh, over the years. And so, you know, for me I see the potential in science fiction but also recognize it is not inherent in it. Um, so I uh, started using the term visionary fiction to talk about what we were doing. And so Octavia's Brood is kind of the first encapsulation of visionary fiction. And uh, you know, a short definition is visionary fiction is fantastical art that helps us understand and challenge existing power structures and supports us in imagining paths to dreaming and creating more just worlds. So that's, that's kind of the broad definition for visionary fiction. And then myself and many other folks that I've been in community with started to kind of create the principles of visionary fiction. Because in the beginning, you know, it was like, a, I'll know it when I see it. And it was, oh, okay, you actually need to have some sort of uh, organized thought around this. Can't just be from your gut all the time. So uh, sort of doing the work of visionary fiction, especially in connection with my co-editor, Adrienne Marie Brown, who was, was and is doing work around emergent strategy. She actually has a book called Emergent Strategy, which you have not gotten. Get it, read it, read it in groups. Like it will save your life and your organization and your soul. That's intense, but it is, it is really incredible. Um, but so, so kind of working together, we were, we were kind of uh, engaging and thinking about the principles and the components of, for her emergent strategy, for me, visionary fiction. And what I realized is that what makes visionary fiction is really two key points. It's identity and it's an exploration of power. And I think that we often get one or the other, but not both in, in science fiction. So for identity, it's about centering folks who are marginalized and the most affected. Um, so seeing through the eyes of the oppressed. It's about not just who the story is about, but whose eyes do we see through this story? Um, and also, of course, who creates these stories? And so I always, I'm gonna go on my like Blade Runner rant. I have like specific rants, so <laughs> I will try and keep like it down to th maybe three rant, maybe four. Four, all right, we'll see. We'll see how the evening goes, y'all. Um, but don't encourage this, don't encourage me. But my Blade Runner rant is, how many folks have seen Blade Runner? Any form of Blade Runner? Okay. So Blade Runners, right, are slave catchers in this future where uh, androids, which are replicants, have been created 
to be born into slavery for the sole purpose of being used and abused and used up by humans, they have a built-in death date implanted into them uh, so that they, they just, they die. Um, and humans have decided the day that they die. They're uh, used for the most dangerous and awful purposes. And if, if some of them try and run and get free, they send a Blade Runner after them to, to kill them. Uh, and so Blade Runner, the, the original film, is told through the eyes of Deckard, who is a Blade Runner, who is a slave catcher. And I saw that movie when I was a kid, and I did not like it, and I couldn't understand why at the time. And um, I mean, it's also real slow. So there was, you know, it's like nine, I'm like, pick it up, oh my God, let's go. Uh, I did not appreciate the artistry of it. But, you know, I think much deeper, I rewatched it as I got older, and I realized, like, it made me kind of physically ill to, have this emotional connection fo foisted upon me to a slave catcher. Uh, and I was always much more interested in the replicants. I was like, what? I want to hear about their stories. What would this story look like told through the replicants' eyes? Because Descartes would be a monster, right? He is, people are just trying to get free. They're just trying to get you know, liberation, they're risking everything, and he is, you know, tracking them down and killing them. And for me especially, there's one uh, replicant, her name is Pris, and she was, she's a female replicant, and she was designed as a pleasure bot. So you can only imagine the gendered horrors she has been through. And for me, I always think about, what if this story was Pris's story and not the Blade Runner story? And I think that our idea of who is evil and good would change entirely. And so I think that that is, for me, uh, a very clear example of why it is so important to have stories that see through the eyes of the oppressed and are told in the voices of the oppressed, not uh, you know, not just including them, but centering them. Because it, it doesn't just add to the story, it completely changes the story we're telling. So that's one piece around identity. And also recognizing that when we're centering the leadership of the marginalized, it's incredibly important to center those folks who sit at the intersections of oppression. And Octavius Brood has a lot of amazing examples of this, showing that when folks who sit at the intersections of identity and oppression are centered, that's when we begin to see what real liberation can look like. And so if it is queer and trans folks of color, if it is undocumented working class folks who are dealing with disabilities, uh, you know, and, and many different manifestations involving all of those and some of those. It is these overlapping identities that when folks are, are given the, the agency or their agency is respected and taken, that they create incredible communities that actually serve and support everyone in it. And so one example is uh, Mia Mingus's story in Octavia's Brood Hollow, and it takes place in a future where folks who are normatively abled have decided to commit genocide against people who are differently abled, who have disabilities. And the normatively abled people call themselves the perfects, and they call folks who are differently abled the unperfects. And so they attempt to commit eugenic genocide. But the unperfects fight back, and they actually are basically waging a guerrilla war for their lives. And there ends up being a truce where the unperfects are sent to this like barren rock in space, basically like, well, you know, you can go build your society, but the perfects assume that the unperfects will die out without them to help them. So basically, they're like, well, we're sentencing you to death in a way that is easier for us. 
But what the unperfects do is they build this incredible society that is rooted in all of themselves. And so the buildings are created for them. The ways decisions are made are created for them. It's not taking something and having to adapt it. It is when they are centered, they, they create an entire new society where everyone feels comfortable and supported and embraced. And so this is, this is again why identity I think is so important. It's not, not just about inclusion, it's about justice and it fundamentally changes the entire story and the outcome of the story because everything is a story, right? Every single piece of existence is a story. We are given data and then we create a story to explain that data. And the stories we tell ourselves are incredibly important. My co-editor, Adrienne Marie Brown, talks about that we are in an imagination battle and that the stories that people are telling are literally killing us. And so storytelling is not just you know, something frivolous. It is, it is life and death. And reclaiming stories and imagining new stories is part of moving forward towards freedom. So there's that piece around identity, but it's not just enough to, you know, to create uh, and, and include characters of color, even if you're centering them, without telling new kinds of stories. So it's about who the stories are about, who's telling the stories, who we are hearing tell those stories, but it's also about the stories that are being told and the, the ideas of... Um, the ideas of change that are being told. And so power is incredibly important. So it's not just about giving you, you know, the same story with a brown person or with a woman or even with like a queer black woman. It's about fundamentally questioning how does power function in this society? It's about recognizing and engaging with power inequalities that exist. It's about making visible systems of oppression, systems of power. And I think most importantly, it's about imagining different relationships to power. How can we in community live differently, deal with each other differently, make decisions differently, share responsibility and share benefits and share resources differently? And that can be very hard because when you've see, not only seen the same thing over and over again, but been told this is all there is, it becomes hard to imagine something else is possible, which again is why as a nerd, I think we need science fiction. Um, but you know, this, I think this relationship to power is really important. Um, I, you know, I love Black Panther, like I love Black Panther. So do not leave here and be like, well, Lita talks smack about Black Panther because I will find you on social media and we gonna talk, y'all, right? And Adrian actually, you know, in Emergent Strategy, she always is talking about growing possibilities. She talks about saying yes and rather than no but. So I think that's really important for our movements. We need quantum movements that have a multiplicity, an infinite amount of entry points, an infinite amount of ways for folks to be involved, to bring their full selves. So for me, I, I always try to say yes and. So when, even when I'm talking mess, there's a yes, yes and, right? I'm not talking mess, so don't tell people that. So I love Black Panther, right? I love me some Black Panther. And Black Panther is a, a single superhero who is a king who decides everything, right? And so the relationship to power isn't necessarily fundamentally changed in Black Panther in that way, right? Like at the end of it, who hasn't seen Black Panther and is going to see it? 
y'all, why are you wasting your lives like this? Oh, man. All right, cover your ears <laughs> So at the end, right, like Killmonger, Black Panther is the one that decides what happens with Killmonger, right? He doesn't bring all the people of Wakanda and say, you know, like, this, this is something that happened to all of us. What, what do we want to happen, all of us together? How do we deal with someone who has done us harm? Like, I wanted a restorative justice circle for, for him. I was like, come on, transformative justice. We can hold him accountable, get him the therapy that he needs, you know, like, work through some issues, some deep-seated misogyny issues. But he can be part of Wakanda. Like, we need Killmonger, right? Uh, but that's, but Black Panther made that decision, right? He made the the choice. And so, um, you know, fundamentally, I love Black Panther, I love the movie, and fundamentally it is a super, a black superhero created by white men in the 1960s imagining what black people in the U.S. think about black people in Africa, right? That is the foundation of it. And I think given that foundation and given the fact that folks were making a movie, a Hollywood movie with Disney, I think they, they took it much further than I even imagined it was possible to go in terms of uh, making it nuanced, complex, authentic. I was, I was like, I was scared, y'all, so scared. But I was like, yes, this is so good given the constrictions that were placed around it. So yes, and we need to have spaces where we start our own stories from the ground up. We're not just adapting other stories that have been given to us. And there we can really say, how do we want to imagine power differently? How do we want to re imagine relationships differently? Um, and, and how do we begin to dream that so that we can actually begin to envision it concretely and then build it into existence? So those are the, the two pieces around visionary fiction is identity and power. And then the principles of how change happens in visionary fiction are really important. And again, as a yes and, I'm not saying visionary fiction is the only kind of sci-fi or nerdy or imaginative fiction that should exist or that is needed in movements. Like I'm down for some like deep dystopias where you walk away and you're like, everything is terrible, we can't let it happen, y'all, right? I'm down for perfect utopias where it's like, we made it and everything's perfect, right? I'm down for the white dude waking up one day and being like, oppression exists though? damn, I need to do something about this. Who, how do I get involved, right? We need all those stories. And I think that visionary fiction, for me, the principles of visionary fiction is what I saw really lacking in the science fiction that I was reading. Um, and that I felt like science fiction, again, had so much potential, but because, these, because it wasn't being written by folks who were oppressed or marginalized, because it wasn't being written by folks who understood those experiences or who had really thought deeply about it at all, um, or who were trying to reimagine radical relationships to power, it wasn't being manifested. So that's my disclaimer again. So the principles of how change happens in visionary fiction is that it's generative. Again, as Adrian talks about, it grows possibilities. It's holistic and to the bone. It is not surface reform. So that means institutions, power structures are fundamentally changed and transformed. It sometimes means that they are destroyed and dismantled and something else is built into their place. 
It's from the bottom up, not the top down, and it has to be collective, right? It cannot be one person deciding what justice looks like, what freedom looks like. It has to be folks coming together and sharing that in a decentralized way without, you know, one person in charge. It's non-transactional, which is really rooted in a, a, an anti-capitalist framework, um, recognizing that a lot of the times our interactions as folks are based on commodification. It's really like I give you something and you will have to give me something back of equal value right at that moment or else it doesn't feel like it's been a fair exchange, right? Those are, those are capitalist principles that are not going to get us to the kind of future that we dream about. And so I think it's really important uh, at, alternately to think about the fact that you know everyone can't bring the same thing at the same time in the same way and that's not only all right, we need that. And so if we're, we're all a community here, we trust that everyone is gonna bring into the pile what you have and that we're going to end up with far more than enough because of that. Um, and so if I can put in 20 bucks, that doesn't mean everyone else has to put in 20 bucks. It means that this is what I can do and I trust that other folks will bring what they can when they can. Um, and so our relationship is based on support and mutual aid rather than on sort of a capitalistic exchange of, of of commodities, right? And sometimes we commodify our friendships, our feelings, um, and we make them into things to trade. Visionary fiction is relational. It recognizes that the relationship between two people is the foundation of any revolution. And so any vision for the future has to understand that change is fractal, right? That you can look at the smallest piece and it is reflected of the larger piece. And so if the relationships between two folks are exploitative, if they are weak, if they are cruel, then ultimately that is going to be what we, in, what we create. And I think a lot of times movements for social change are focused on short-term campaigns, so we don't see that, right? If you're only looking at three months or six months or two years, the ends may justify the means, right? We don't have time to like be all touchy-feely, we got stuff to do. But if you're looking at 50 years or 100 years or 200 years, then you recognize that, that if that is not something that is part of the foundation, then ultimately what we are creating will not get us to where we want to go, will not get us truly liberated or truly free. And so we, we have to you know, recognize that the process you know, is, is not only as important as the outcome, it is, it is actually the outcome. Right? Um, it's non-linear, so I do have a time travel ramp, but I'm not gonna go into it right now. Maybe later if we have time. I, I will, that, that will not be my rant card that I play right now. I will hold that one in my hand. Uh, but this, you know, the idea of a lot of science fiction, especially hard science fiction rooted in, you know, uh, scientific, um, explorations and, and expl uh, explanations uh, is, is often a very colonial, white supremacist science fiction. And it is one that views time as linear. It's a linear progression towards greatness, right? So you're moving from savagery, which means communities of color, into whiteness. And in science fiction, it's usually literal, right? Everything is white and chrome in the future. I was like, I don't know why that, I mean, you know, it's all right, but every room though, can I get like some color up in here? <laughs> um, 
But, you know, the reality is visionary fiction doesn't view time like that. It actually challenges linear time and recognizes that is a tool of colonialism and it's also a tool of social control. And it actually recognizes the wisdoms, the experiences, the guidance of the folks who have came before us, especially for, for folks from communities of col color, is something that we absolutely need to be able to build the futures that we want. And we're building those futures in conversation with the folks in the past. It's not something they're long gone and we can't reach them and touch them. Like we are, we are right next to them. We are breathing with them as we create these futures. And we're also breathing and in conversation with the future at the same time. So really challenging this idea of, of linear time. Um, Yes, I'm going to stop there because I was about to go off. I'm not going to go off. All right. There will be more rants, y'all. There will be so many more rants. And the last one of visionary fiction is that visionary fiction is not neutral and it does not purport to be neutral. I think a lot of times folks want to talk about art for art's sake or, you know, that you want to reach everyone with your art. I think another thing, especially politically nowadays, is about reaching the middle, finding the compromise, finding the middle ground. And visionary fiction rejects that. And visionary fiction is rooted in the understanding that all art is political because everything is political. And my co-editor, Adrian, always says that art either advances or regresses justice. So all art either moves justice forward or it moves it back. If you are not aware of the politics you're perpetuating in your art, then you are probably maintaining the status quo, which is unconsciously and unintentionally regressing justice. And so for us, we are very thoughtful and very intentional about siding uh, with justice, and we're very proud of that fact. So we, you know, we never try to be, objectivity is a fallacy. We never try and pretend objectivity. We prefer passion over objectivity. So those are, that's, that's visionary fiction right there, uh, encaps, encapsulated. And if you haven't seen the film Poomsie, you should. It's on, I think it's still on YouTube. It's only like 24 minutes. Uh, an amazing film by a Kenyan filmmaker, sci-fi, dystopic, beautiful. So watch that. Um, but I wanted to move into, so I've talked about visionary fiction. The writers talked a little bit about how they're engaging with it in their stories. Um, but I also think it's important to note that for us, the anthology was one way of talking about visionary fiction, about talking about using um, radical science fiction in our social change work. But we also wanted to create other opportunities to do that. So um, uh, a number of us, uh, especially myself, Adrian and Morgan Phillips, who was in the video talking about her story, which is based on the Guantanamo Bay hunger strikes. Um, she is a, an incredible trainer and organizer in Boston, actually, and we we're trying to get her up here, but she couldn't make it. Um, but we developed, uh, along with other folks, um, workshops to uh, collectively, as Adrian says, collectively ideate and dream together so that folks can you know, kind of come together and imagine, experiment, uh, and play as well uh, in these, these ideas of imagining different futures. So um, I'm gonna talk a, a little bit about some of how this, I've seen these move in the larger world and talk a little bit about the workshops. And so the examples I'm gonna share from the larger world, I'm not necessarily, I've not necessarily been involved with all of them. They're just ways that I see visionary fiction manifesting.
So Black Lives Matter, um, a couple years ago, put out a call on their website to have folks write in, uh, responding to the prompt, in a world where Black Lives Matter, I imagine. And I was so, I'm so you know, thankful to Black Lives Matter for so many things, but I was so thankful for that imaginative space and that visionary space of saying, you know, concretely, what would this world look like? Because we have to be able to engage with it on, you know, on a, on a sensory level to make it real for us, you know, as human beings and to really concretely begin to say, what would it, you know, what would the institutions look like? What would have to change? How would we interact with one another? How would we move through this world? Um, and so to give folks the opportunity to think about that, I think is really important. And I think even, you know, even, the name Black Lives Matter to me is, is visionary fiction um, because unfortunately we live in a world where black lives do not matter and that has been reinforced again and again and again. And I think this movement could have called itself you know, many different things. It could have called itself hands up. It could have called itself you know, stop killing us and all of those would have been legitimate and absolutely correct. And I think by calling our, the, the, the movement Black Lives Matter, it has given the, the possibility for thinking, for centering not, not the oppression, but the, the humanity and the vision for the world that, that not only we want, but the world that folks have been building and living. And this is, all right, it's like a tiny bit of my time travel rant, right? Because I think, you know, saying, we live in a world where black lives don't matter. Also, this, this is the future we wanna build and black lives have always mattered for black folks. And it, so we have been living that future that we have wanted to build for hundreds of years in this country. And so we've constantly been defying linear time by pulling the future into the present and holding onto it as tightly as possible for as long as possible. And when we couldn't hold on any longer, then we reached back out and started the process over again. And so I'm, I'm thankful for Black Lives Matter creating this sort of visionary statement. So every time we talk about this movement, this organization, we say the future that that we want and the future that black folks have been creating and dreaming um, for hundreds of years. So another example, Morgan and I, Morgan Phelps and I did a program with Black and Pink, which is LGBTQ prisoners network and free world allies, and specifically focused on abolishing the prison industrial complex. And so the, the vast majority of folks in black and pink are incarcerated. And so uh, we were working with them and they said that they wanted to engage in a visionary fiction process. So they ended up using their newsletter. And so what we did was uh, we got a group of, of black and pink folks who are on the outside together and they did a workshop that we have which is a world building workshop. And so they kind of created this world which was Actually, it was a really ingenious world because there's so much censorship about what can get into prisons. And certainly if anything is critical of prisons, it is much more likely to be rejected from being able to get into prisons. And so uh, the folks on the outside were like, how can we create a visionary fiction story that lets us talk about prison abolition but not say prison abolition because we actually want folks on the inside to be able to be involved in this. And so they, they actually created this like fantastic world with like multiple planets and it was, I was like, y'all went for it and it is amazing. 
Uh, but one of the, plan the planet that they started on, uh, they created this society where when someone had been judged to have done something wrong, they were actually eaten by this, this monster and they had to spend a certain amount of time in the monster's stomach uh, and then when they had served their time, they got out in a really terrible way, as you can imagine. And then, but they were permanently marked by being in there. And so then they had to come back to society but everyone knew that they had spent this time in the monster's belly and there was, uh, organizing to end this but folks were like how do we do that and what do we do in its place right and I was like y'all are so brilliant because a guard who is who's like looking through stuff is gonna look at that and be like I don't know it's some weird sci-fi story about monsters it's cool let it go in right I'm like this is such a beautiful narrative around the prison industrial complex and the destruction that it wreaks um, and yet folks engaged with it so poetically and metaphorically that people on the inside were there was no way they were gonna miss that. And yet, for, for the most part, the guards were not even gonna pay any attention to a sci-fi story about monsters. And so they created their own, the own world, and then they, they basically offered it in the newsletter as a choose your own adventure, right? Who remembers choose your own adventure? Okay, thank, thank y'all. Cause I go, I go to this youth prison and I talk to them every month and I was like, we gonna do a choose your own adventure. And they just looked at me and my heart broke a little bit. I was like, choose your own adventure. They're like, you just keep saying the same words over and over. We don't actually know what that means. Why? Um, so anyway, for the folks who do not know, and that's totally fine if you don't know, I just, I felt really sad <laughs> and all alone. Um, so choose your own adventure books uh, would be telling, a, it's an interactive story. So you would read, you'd be like, you're in this haunted house, if you want to go left, turn to page five. If you want to go right, turn to page 16. You, you're like, I'm going right. Turn to page 16. Oh, you're dead. You got eaten by a werewolf. Damn it. And you have to go back, right, and start over again. Um, so basically, they created their own choose your own adventure where folks could write in continuations of the story. They would choose three of those, uh, two of those stories, print them in the next newsletter. Folks write in. They chose two of those, print them, next newsletter, and on and on. So it was actually this co incredible collaboration story process through prison prison walls that uh, I just thought was really incredible and so part of the the instructions were these quotes how can I contribute to the story and then let's what we let's see what we can build with one another which I just thought I was like this is just incredible and so the 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 last real world example I want to give is from Portland, Oregon, which is where I live. And the Portland African American Leadership Forum put out this uh, document, the People's Plan. It is the culmination of dozens of visioning sessions that they had with Black folks in Portland. For folks who don't know, Portland is the whitest major city in America. It's also the most gentrified city of the century. The Black community has been. Uh, utterly devastated. There is no longer any neighborhood where there is a black majority in Portland, which cannot be said of any other major city in the, in the US. And so uh, folks have been displaced in multiple directions, um, along with so many other things that are, that are happening there. And so the, the Portland African American Leadership Forum, which is PALF for short, um, was uh, engaged in gentrification work, anti-gentrification work. Uh, but then they, they said, how do we move forward? And we want to make sure we're moving forward with everyone 
in the community. So they, for years, for I think two or three years, they held dozens of visioning sessions with hundreds of black folks across Portland and neighboring areas where folks have been displaced. And asked them the same kinds of questions. But it wasn't just, I think, you know, I think a lot of times when visioning sessions happen, they're very much rooted in kind of policy and, um, you know, these like concrete plans. But I loved that, that some of the questions that they started with were, if Portland was a utopia, what would the African and African American community look like? And then how do we get to utopia? And I think starting with those created so much more of an expansive space that allowed for much more uh, radical and free-ranging ideas to, uh, to, to, to be allowed into that space. Um, and I also think, you know, it's a really powerful way of talking about change because, you know, these questions seem fantastical and they seem just like kind of out there and yet, these are really, these can be policy questions, right? What is the kind of city we wanna live in? What are the steps we need to take to get there? But said in this way, it feels less, I think, uh, daunting and constraining and, and more empowering. And so they ended up taking everyone's responses and compiling policy um, initiatives and uh, organizing priorities from that and issued this document. And so I was just, you know, I was just incredibly amazed and, and proud to see that happening in my own town of really seeing the, the principles of uh, visionary fiction change enacted through this process as well. So those are the real world examples. And then some of how, you know, we're getting there with, with the work that we're doing is um, uh, collective science fiction writing and visioning workshops. So folks come together based on specific issues like prisons, reproductive justice, and then they create worlds specifically tailored to allow them to explore those stories. Um, and, you know, it's, it's incredible. I just did it at a high school in Portland, the historic black high school. And, you know, in the beginning, I'm like, we're going to, like, write today and we're going to create worlds. And folks are like, I don't do that. And then they literally get, like, 40 minutes in small groups. And they come up with the most complicated, complex, incredible worlds where they're like, but then, but then, but then this happened. And then, and then this history. And let me tell you a little about, about the cultural background, right? And I'm like, y'all did this in a group of like 10 people in 30 minutes, right? And then they all go and write individually in those worlds as well. So we tried to model the structure on, you know, the collective and the individual, recognizing we don't actually have to choose, we can have both. So, you know, I think a lot of times we're presented either with the sort of, you know, capitalist individualist model, um, you know, of like just, you gotta do it all by yourself, right? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Um, which uh, the comedian Dick Gregory actually had a joke where he's like, have you ever tried to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? You'll end up flat on your ass, right? Boom. Uh, you know, so either it's, you know, the individual or it's this sort of collectivism that is, you know, that sucks any individuality out, right? I mean, I feel like science fiction has been incredibly, incredibly effective at demonizing communalism, communism, collectivism, right? Like, 1984, everyone's like, oh, not 1984, we all have to wear the same suits. Or The Giver. How many of y'all had to read The Giver? 
right? Rough. I was like, so everyone can have their needs met and we can all be a collective, but everything's gray. Oh, and by the way, we eat, we kill babies. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> no coming back from that. So, you know, we try to model this structure that it, it doesn't have to be either or, that collectively we are stronger when everyone has the space to bring their own brilliance and their own, their own ingenuity. Um, so the sci-fi and direct action organizing workshop is perhaps the nerdiest and funnest thing I've ever been involved in. Uh, and it was, it was originally created by Morgan. And it takes existing uh, fantastical franchises, so Harry Potter, Star Wars, Willy Wonka, Wizard of Oz, and uh, folks get into groups based on their franchises. They embody the most oppressed people in that group. They create an organizing goal, and then they create direct action tactics to make that happen. Oh my God, you guys. <laughs> so like the Harry Potter, one of the Harry Potter groups uh, created the Elf Liberation Front, which is Elf. <laughs> and they uh, started a, uh, 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 Gorilla uh, <clears throat> Saturday school for magical beings and for squibs who cannot get education, right? If you don't have magic or you're not human, you can't get education in Harry Potter. So they were like, we're taking it back, right? Um, I think my favorite one was, uh, it was a Willy Wonka group. And, you know, because this, you know, it's about, it, this is also a really, I think, powerful way for folks to think through organizing tactics as well. Because folks in the, in the Willy Wonka group, of course they were the Oompa Loompas, like who else are you gonna be in Willy Wonka, right? They're the Oompa Loompas and I came over and they were like, I was like, so what are y'all, what are y'all up to? And they're like, we Oompa Loompas, that's the other thing. No one's ever like, well the Oompa Loompas in our story, they're like, we Oompa Loompas demand that Willy Wonka listen to us, stop exploiting our labor, we can't even get healthcare, we only get chocolate to eat, you can't live on chocolate, we don't have dental care, right? They're like, until Willy Wonka meets our demands, we are locking in and shutting down the chocolate factory. No chocolate for anyone, right? And like, that is literally how they delivered it to me in the small group check-in. I was like, yes, okay. I was like, yes. And also, clearly this town loves their chocolate, right? These people love their chocolate. You saw those kids lose their minds over this chocolate. So how are you going to share with the townspeople why you're doing this? Because Willie could really easily flip it on you and be like, they're the ones who took your chocolate, not me, right? So I'm like, how are you going to communicate with everyday people of this town why you're doing this so they support your demands and put pressure on Willie Wonka? And they were like, all right, all right, all right. And I was like, cool. I started to walk away to go to another group. And I heard sc someone screamed out, Flash mobs! Oompa Loompas are perfectly built for flash mobs. And I was like, so my work here is done. I'm in this realm, and I, I can go. So uh, yeah, as a, I can, I can just tell those stories all day. But I think you know, one of the, I think there are many things that are amazing about this. I also think it's amazing because it allows us to reclaim these franchises that are really important to us, these worlds and these stories. Some of us have invested a lot of time. Like seriously, y'all, like I learned Klingonese. I learned a made up language. I begged my mom to send me to Klingon language camp and she refused. She was like, um, we don't have money. And if we had money, you would go to a camp that actually was a real language that would be useful. And I was like, you don't understand me. You're a patach, you know? So, 
We spent a lot of time, that did not go over well either. She was like, I don't know what you just said. You're in trouble though. <laughs> um, so, you know, we spent a lot of time on these worlds. There are things that, that speak to us really deeply. And then I think, especially as folks who are wanting new just worlds, there are parts of them that are really difficult and they're hard to contend with. And so I think, you know, there's, there's kind of this, you know, movement towards, you know, if things, things aren't perfect, then it should be thrown out, right? If it's, it's, it's problematic. And I, I actually would like us to not just use the word problematic by itself. Like I, I'm, this is my, 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 one of my rants. <laughs> if something is problematic, share with people why. Because otherwise, if you just say that's problematic, all folks are like, oh, I did something wrong. I have no idea, because clearly I like it. I don't know why it's problematic. So <laughs> I don't know how to make this better, so I'm just going to be quiet. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, so, but many of these things we love are problematic. And they, they are amazing, and they speak to us in different ways. So this workshop really allows folks to, I think, you know, reclaim that and reclaim the, the, the vision and the excitement that they, they felt in that. Um, so, uh, just quickly, um, one other tool that was created, our collection is named for Octavia Butler. And so, uh, Adrian and Alexis Pauline Gums, who also contributed to Octavia's Brood and who is uh, an amazing visionary poet and thinker and organizer and just like otherworldly spirit, uh, created this Octavia Butler Strategic Reader. It's just like a very short, PDF, you can actually download it for free online. And I'm not gonna go through all the questions, um, I'll just share them with you here. But I think, you know, one of the, the things that I think is really powerful about this is it, it allows us to put into context um, and think critically about uh, science fiction works. And I think that it's, it allows us to say, you know, education and thought and intellectualism don't just happen in institutions, right, in universities, that they're happening in many, many different locations, especially for folks who have been historically locked out of institutions. Um, and so how can, we, how can we think critically and how can we read some of these works as critical analysis, as, as things to learn from, not just things to, to entertain us? Um, this is a workshop I did earlier today, which was awesome. I did it with some college students as well as some high school students, which was really cool. It's a zine-making workshop. So uh, I created the People's Encyclopedia uh, 2070. So uh, it is, uh, it's, it's zine, so everyone writes, um, they pick an issue or a topic, and they basically write an entry in this People's Encyclopedia from the year 2070. And it is about imagining a things are get you know if if we win how how can we write write those wins as if they've already happened um, we claim the past with with so much certainty um, this is what happened how can we claim the future with just as much certainty this is what is going to happen and so again people write them as encyclopedia entries this already happened right on this date we won in these ways and this positive change came out of it um, and I, I have found it is incredibly empowering to write the future I want as historical fact um, and it feels much closer, I think. I'm like, ah, I wrote it, it's done. We just gotta make it happen, whatever. The hard part's done, right? The rest is easy. Um, but it was, it's really fun and it's, it's also great for folks to walk away with something, you know, at the, at the end of something. 
So those are just kind of the real life experiences. And I just wanted to end um, with one more contributor's voice and then uh, we can have dialogue. So uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, who is a political prisoner in Pennsylvania, he is an award-winning journalist. He's the author of, I think, 12 books from, from most of them written while he was on death row in Pennsylvania. Um, he's been a, you know, inspiration for so many folks. He is also a huge nerd, so um, I did not know this until I, I was lucky enough. I, I did political prisoner support work. I was in Pennsylvania. I got to go visit with him, and in my head, I was much younger, and in my head, I was like, you must be a revolutionary. You must be serious. You must show him that you, you were serious, and we were talking, and you, you visit through, you know, bulletproof plexiglass, um, and there are just these vents on the side that are really difficult to hear through. Um, but so I was trying to be serious, and then I couldn't hear him, and I made a Star Trek joke about hailing frequencies, and I was like, oh, why? Why did you do that? And he was like, yes, right, right on. Live long and prosper, definitely. And he kept talking. He was like, science fiction is such a powerful way. And I honestly could not tell you what he said after that, because in my head I was just like, Mumia is a nerd. <laughs> I didn't think he could get more amazing, but he just did. Um, so I was writing with him, and I way in the beginning of Octavia's Brood, and I told him about the project, and he wrote me back. He was like, yes, this is so important. He's like, like Star Wars. And then he just wrote the like most powerful exploration of Star Wars I'd ever read. And I was like, can, can we just print this? <laughs> He's like, look. I'll clean it up a little bit. Um, but anyway, so I, I want to bring his voice in here because he is still incarcerated. He actually um, is going for his last legal appeal um, in the next couple months. So, um, you know, he is a huge part of, of Octavie's brood, of the visioning community, of communities holding these, you know, revolutionary futures and carrying the weight and the, the repercussions of them. And I, you know, I hope folks will, if you're not aware, find out more about him and especially know that right now he needs support. We need to be um, standing beside him because this is his last legal um, appeal. So this was a segment on the Laura Flanders show. So they actually did a visual. So it's his voice. He um, did he called in to prison radio and they recorded him and then they did this this visual for it. So. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, zero. When Star Wars premiered in 1977, it swept the nation like a fever. Lines circled blocks and before long it was more than a movie, it was a craze. TV commercials hawked wares and blazing with Star Wars figures available from McDonald's. Get yours now. Before all was said and done, the movie grossed nearly half a billion dollars. That's billions with a B. I was, however, out of the loop. In 1977, I was in my 23rd year of life, and the targeted demographic was pre-teen and teen rather than post-teen. Besides, I was more of a Star Trek guy. And it didn't hurt that one of the stars of the Trekkie universe was a black beauty who blazed the screen like a dark, luscious comet every time she appeared. To the uninitiated, I here refer to actress Michelle Nichols, who performed as Lieutenant Uhura of the Trek bridge crew. That said, I watched with fascination as the lines grew and 
Other film companies tried to copy the money-making magic of the Star Wars franchise. They usually failed miserably, however. Why did Star Wars strike such a deep and jangling nerve? Why did it become a craze? One would seem to surprise everyone, critics, the movie's executives, all it seemed, except producer George Lucas. The nation had just recently been forced to submit to a seemingly uncivilized, as in low-tech enemy, and it faced the generational rebellion of the 60s. The Vietnam syndrome permeated the culture, not just the political elites. The younger were virtually uniformly anti-war in their orientation, and a counterculture was sweeping the nation, changing dress, hairstyles, sexual mores, food consumption, and the way national minorities both were perceived and perceived themselves. In short, the land was in the midst of a cultural and political rebellion, sparked in large part by resistance to an unpopular war. An American president, Nixon, recently resigned several months after his vice president, top aides, including the attorney general, John Mitchell, were sent to prison. The human detritus of what would become the Watergate scandal. In this context, why would a movie, even one set in another world, find appeal when the heroes were the ragtag bunch of rebels, decidedly low-tech, fighting against a fearsome, militarily invincible empire? Part of Star Wars' success was its undeniable youth appeal, yet there must be deeper reasons for its cultural resonance. America, the Empire, didn't like its role, at least among the young. It wanted to reimagine itself as the ragtag band, fighting against great odds, against an evil empire. It imagined itself as it wanted to be, as it claimed to be in its infancy against a cruel and despotic king of the late 18th century. It reshaped itself into the rebels, not the imperial overlords. It shaped itself as oppressed, fighting for freedom. But America, like every nation, has its ages of psychosis. It has fits of indecision and periods of self-delusion. Consider how American presidents spoke movingly of freedom from tyranny while holding personally hundreds of men, women, and children in slavery. Or imagine Jefferson, the sage of Monticello, who was the father of half black children at the same moment as he wrote in his only book, Notes on the State of Virginia, that black people were essentially non-human, a species related to the orangutan. I mean, does this mean that he saw himself as being in the bestiality? Or did this mean he really thought his children were, well, half monkey? Americans, like any people, are subject to delusions. Was this fascination with Star Wars and the national identification with the rebels one of them? For generations, Americans have declined to define themselves as imperialists. That's what our enemies called us. That wasn't what we called ourselves. We were for freedom. We were for self-determination. We were good. We were white, mostly. We were Luke Skywalker, not Darth Vader, and definitely not the cruel, warped emperor. Yet aficionados of the Star Wars saga know that Luke and Darth were, after all, intimately related. Darth's infamous line at their lightsaber battle has become a cultural byword, I am your father, Luke. It is a measure of Lucas's genius that he scripts that moment of self-realization, of self-discovery, and of revelation. In the grisly aftermath of a war that tore millions from the face of Asia, 
all to cover for the corporate exploitation of Vietnam's bauxite and other natural resources. The Imperial Shock Trooper, the Imperial Metallic Death's Hand, was father to the rebel. They were, in fact, more than related. In truth, they were one. That is the meaning of Star Wars. We were rebels. We are Empire. And like all rebellious children, we were but going through a phase. We're getting ready for adulthood after we sowed a few wild oats. Once grown, we put on our Imperial uniform and bow to the Empire. It is your destiny, right? Unless... From somewhere, maybe on the Enterprise, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. So that is going to conclude the official part. And now I'd, I'd love to open it up to questions, di but dialogue, conversation, nerdy recommendations, vegan recipes. <laughs> Uh, and we have a, so folks want to share, uh, just raise your hand and the microphone will come to you. So, oh. <laughs> Thank you. Thank y'all. Hello, my name is Claudia, um, and I'm a, in the MFA uh, program here, studying poetry. Um, I really appreciate you coming out to share um, on this topic. And a while ago, I was at an event put on by Intelligent Mischief in mm -hmm. Boston. Yes. Um, and your uh, co-collaborator, um, was there talking about this topic and I was really interested in it. Um, I have two questions. One, I'm always curious about how to stay connected to this because it feels like, like almost like a movement. And mm -hmm. so I'm always asking myself, like, how do I concretely do things that keep this uh, vision relevant? Um, not only in my own writing, but more of just like, I don't know, I guess embodying it more or seeing it in a more practical day-to-day -day way. Um, so that's one of my questions. And two, uh, there's been like a lot of like racist, transphobic incidents happening on campus. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about the, the question that was posed um, in some of the community organizing spaces and wondering if uh, creatively people could, would you mind if we stole that whole thing about <laughs> that question of reimagining the mm -hmm. university um, in a, in a envisioning alternative um, sci-fi or visionary futures um, because it just feels like it's a concrete way for folks to actually think about themselves on the university and giving the university input about what could be changed. So I was curious about yeah. those two things. Yeah, yeah. Th no, thank you so much. Those are all great comments and questions, and y'all can steal away. So um, I was going to sing, but I'm not going to sing steal away. Uh, I had to hold myself back. But I think, you know, it's, it's 
it's not stealing. These are definitely tools that we, we hope folks will use. I mean, my dream and I think Adrian's dream too is that, you know, our movements, our organizations will include visioning as part of their work, you know, whether it's during meetings or it's during um, strategic planning or it's during, you know, conception or outreach, that this becomes, you know, that we're thinking imaginatively and beyond um, these systems hundreds of years. So yeah, I think that would be, that would be amazing. And I think, you know, I think it's really powerful to do also, you know, within institutions, especially like universities. And, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't been here long, but I know that in, you know, Portland, there's definitely uh, a, you know, sort of neoliberal racism that supposedly invites feedback and dialogue, uh, but in a way that just reinforces white, white supremacist hierarchy and power structures. And so I think oftentimes what happens is in those systems versus systems that are much more overtly hostile, what it does is it often sucks more of your energy out of you, right? Because it's the difference between like a brick wall and a chain link fence and you trying to bring it down. Like with a brick wall, you know, I can't just start hitting this brick wall and it's going to come down, right? Like I got that. I know I need to, I need to plan. I need a different strategy. I need some folks. I need some sledgehammers. I'm going to be back, right? But with a chain link fence, it can often be deceptive because if you shake on it, it moves. And so you think, oh, maybe, maybe actually if I just shake it enough, I can tear this down. And it ends up taking all your energy and absorbing your energy while not necessarily really having an impact. So I think... I think, you know, I, I have found in Portland and, you know, at the institutions I've taught at there, it's been really helpful to engage in science fiction to move beyond the boundaries of, you know, the sort of space of possibility that the university has created. Because I think it can be very easy to get caught up in that in institutions that allow some dissent, right? You can be like, no, there's enough room here. And I think science fiction has often proved really useful to step out of that and say, actually, we're not gonna do your petition and your you know, listening sessions and your whatever. We're gonna, we actually have a different plan, right? So steal away. Um, I really appreciate you bringing up Intelligent Mischief. They're awesome. Everyone, because y'all are so close, should check out their work. They actually just put out a new anthology, speaking of Wakanda, that is about uh, immigration stories from Wakanda. And so it's written by a lot of community organizers and writers. My co-editor, Adrian Marie Brown, wrote, wrote a short story, and they're all really short flash, flash fiction, but they're, it's really amazing, and you can download the um, anthology for free. It's really short, so you should you should look that up. Um, there was a second question that I somewhere in the middle that I've forgotten. It was about how to connect with these this work, right? Yes. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I think there are some some key folks who are kind of doing. I mean, lots of people are doing this work, but I think in terms of creating being sort of space generators and creators um, in terms of especially like the black speculative arts movement. Um, John Jennings, who did our cover for Octavia's Brood, he is an incredible visual artist and he is really, I don't know how he does it, but he plans like 87 events every week. So I'm just, I'm exaggerating, but it's a lot. Um, so, you know, there, there have been conferences uh, in multiple parts of the country to really try and bring folks together to have these conversations um, on an ongoing basis. So it's not just one conference here, but folks can continue to 
collectively ideate and generate together. Um, but you know, I think there are lots of people who are doing this work and moving it in lots of different ways as well. Um, one of our contributors who I mentioned, Mia Mingus, on her story, Hollow, she's doing a lot of this around transformative justice and, and talking about how, how can we utilize science fiction around transformative justice, community accountability processes. Um, so you know, there, yeah, there are a lot of folks who are engaging with it. What's up? How you doing? Um, so, I was really interested by like the approach you took with the lecture because I'm someone who grew up loving comics, um, Lord of the Rings, Yu-Gi-Oh cards, all of that. Um, but at the same time, I'm also someone who grew up in gang culture. I'm also someone who grew up in very violent places. I'm also someone who realizes that it's hard to concentrate on like mythical beings and stuff like that when your brother's fighting a case and your mother's on crack, you know what I'm saying? So like, I would love to do exercises like that, the workshops with kids in my community mm -hmm. or even with some of my peers. Yeah. But it's like, how do you get people to get into it? How do you get people to care, essentially? Yeah. No, thank you, that's really powerful. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think that's that's really that, that's like really important. I I as I said I go to a youth prison. I work with the Black Cultural Group there. Brothers Reflecting Brotherhood is the name of the group, and um, you know we've done these exercises and it's it's been it's been really powerful. I've also seen I've done it because I've been going for five years. I've seen a, a marked shift. I was saying before we should start like tagging time as BPP and ABP before Black Panther and after Black Panther. <laughs> like as a black nerd, like things have changed y'all. So the first time I did it with them was like a few years ago and folks were like, sci-fi, I don't know, miss. I don't know about this. I'm like, just try it there. I'm like, what are you gonna do? And they're like, that's fine. And then they had fun. And then I did it again after Black Panther and they actually got to see it. Um, they got, they had a screening in there and I was like, y'all, you wanna like create superheroes in sci-fi? They were like, hell yeah. It's like, yes, Black Panther for the win. Um, so I think that this is actually a really opportune time because I think that Black Panther has created up space where black folks can see these reflections of themselves and see a relevance to themselves. Um, you know, I also think, uh, you know, that um, there's, there's a great MC from Seattle, his name is, well, he doesn't live in Seattle anymore. I forget where he lives, Canada. Um, but his name is Kings, K-H-I-N-G-Z. And so he talks about growing up gang affected, but, and also growing up like a big nerd, and like how he navigated that. And he has one album called um, From Slave Ships to Spaceships is incredible. It's just an incredible album. All of his work is incredible, but that is really beautiful. And I feel like, um, bringing in those pieces of folks who have lived that and sharing with folks. Um, I played that for, for the youth and they, they felt like connected to it in a way of me just ranting on about sci-fi did not <laughs> feel as connected to them. So um, yeah. And on, so he, he actually did this, because uh, one of the contributors to Octavia's Brood is LeVar Burton, who you may know from reading Rainbow, Star Trek The Next Generation, Roots. He is amazing. He's like the sweetest human being ever. Um, and so he, he let us reprint uh, a section of his book. But um, 
so Kings made this t-shirt. It was like only for him. I begged him to make me one for slave, from slave ships to spaceships. And it had a picture of Kunta Kinte and then the reading rainbow to Jordi LaForge. And it said from slave ships to spaceships. And I was like, why won't you give it to me? Right? And he's like, nah, I can't. I was like, mass produce them. He's like, I'm not going to mass produce some, somebody else's face on my t-shirts without asking them. And I was like, just make it for me then. Um, my collectivism fell by the wayside very quickly. I was like, I want it. Uh, but that was, that was a total side note, but yeah. Hi. Um, I read Octavia's Brood when it came out, and I'm so happy to be here right now. Um, I have a kind of a one of those infamous uh, comments as questions, but <laughs> I kind of just wanted your comment on it, which is that I noticed that you know, a lot of the politicized fiction that we progressive sci-fi nerds kind of idolize, like, I think that it itself has flaws and that we really need to build on it. Like, I mean, I love Ursula K. Le Guin and I love Octavia Butler and I could, you know, and I reread them practically like every year. But like one thing that's always bothered me about Octavia Butler's work is that every, in every novel of hers, there's at least like one sentence of respectability politics that really disparages both drug users and sex workers. And as a drug users union and sex workers rights activist, that bothers me a lot. And I mean, I think it's really inspiring to hear about the anti, the prison abolitionist visionary fiction workshops, workshops that you're talking about. And I was just wondering, like, how do we, what do you think about building on um, the visionary fiction canon that we already have and trying to make it better? I mean, I think, you know, it's, it is about always being in dialogue and I think it's important to recognize no one is, like, no one is ever going to be perfect and I think our movement has a lot of problems with wanting to create heroes and I think that's, that's a problem whether we're creating fictional heroes in stories or real heroes in real life because that, those aren't real human beings and um, it means that we can't, you know, emulate them and we can't, you know, achieve that level. And it also means that when we mess up or we're problematic or whatever, then we're, we're like, all right, well now I'm disqualified from the hero game. And so, you know, I, you know, I love Octavia and I think, for me, I think it's not about making things better or building on them, it's about being in conversation with folks. Um, and so for Octavia's Brood, I mean, we named it in honor of Octavia Butler, who passed away before this book came out. So we don't know how she would have felt about us being like, hey, we're your brood. She might have been like, uh-uh, no, no, <laughs> right? But, you know, one of the reasons we chose that, well, it was in reference to her trilogy, Lilith's Brood, the name of it. We felt like it was really uh, not just clever. I did think it was clever. But, um, you know, we thought it was really appropriate because in Lilith's brood, aliens have come to the earth, hum the human race is basically, has basically killed itself, and the, the aliens save the human race, but because they want our genes, because they're gene traders, and so they basically have tell humans there will be no more human race because y'all can't be trusted on your own, so you're going to meld with us and there'll be a new, there'll be a whole new species of the aliens are called Oankali and human hybrids. And so the book focuses, it's told in the story first of a, of a 
black human woman, and then one of her children, and then another one of her children who are hybrids, right? And I think that that idea that the, you know, Lilith's brood, it, they are utterly familiar and completely alien to both sides of their parents. Things happen with the hybrid that the humans didn't expect and the Owen Collie don't expect, and they're like, we don't know how to deal with this. And to me, I think that is what, you know, that's, that's why we called ourselves Octavia's brood. It may not be the way Octavia would do things, it probably is not the way Octavia would do things, um, but we feel like we pay homage and respect to her um, while recognizing, you know, we have to find our path as well. And so for me, it's about, you know, it's about honor and respect and then about being in conversation and dialogue rather than trying to, you know, to correct or um, make better um, what, what exists and what's come before. Hi, hi, thank you so much. Um, I was really, really resonating with what you were saying um, sort of towards the beginning about how um, like campaign oriented movements can be. Um, and so we're like really focused on the short term um, and how like necessary it is, which I ag agree with to, um, to utilize our imaginations. Um, but I'm also feeling like because like there's just so much damage control to do, and it always it off, or like it often feels like we're taking three steps forward and two steps back. If you have any insight on um, like ways that we can bridge or like synthesize our visions for the future while staying grounded mm -hmm. in the work that we need to be doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I would definitely. My first answer is like always read Adrian's book, Emergent Strategy, because it really that is really what it's about is about how do we basically take these visionary fiction principles and these ideals and like literally put them in our work and in our lives and in our movements. Um, and I think the other thing that I would say is, I think we, we often lose imagination right at the moment that we need it most, right? And I think those moments like this that feel really um, dystopian and hard are the the times when we need imagination more and I think we often are like we don't have time for that and I think that's exactly when we need that because otherwise we're gonna spend all of our energy and exhaust ourselves and maybe kill ourselves just to keep things from getting worse right and I, again it's a yes and because I you know I firmly believe in making sure that you know folks survive long enough to create change. And so, you know, I, I'm a prison abolitionist. I believe that prisons make us less safe. I believe that prisons should be dismantled and that we should institute uh, processes that hold folks accountable for harm they've done that focus on healing individuals and communities. And I have many people that I love who are incarcerated, including my adopted brother, and. I will not abandon them. And so I can't be an absolutist abolitionist and say, oh no, I can't do that. That's reform, I'm not going to do it. I'm like, if this is gonna make life easier for people that I love in prison, if this is gonna make them better able to maintain their, their humanity <clears throat> and to continue doing the incredible organizing work that folks who are incarcerated are doing, right? It's not, we're not doing something for folks. Some of our best organizers in this country are in prison and we need to be learning from them and working in community and solidarity with them. So it's about both, right? I, I want folks to survive and we need to be clear about 
what we're surviving for, right? Are we surviving to just continue this system? And I, you know, I use the example of the Black Panther Party a lot because the Black Panther Party, uh, again, not going to go on the Black Panther Party rant, but uh, you know, at their height, they had 50 chapters. The only program every chapter was mandated to have was a free breakfast for children program, which is actually why we have free and reduced lunch programs from the federal government is the Black Panther Party. Um, in 1969, the California treasurer said that the Black Panther Party fed more children than the United States government every day. They fed tens of thousands of children with no grant money, no government money, just people donating time, energy, love, uh, food. And uh, a couple years later, the federal government was basically shamed into starting their own free and reduced program because the, pan the Panthers were like, if we can do all this with nothing, what you doing with our tax money though, right? Um, and so I think, that, so there, that's the program that folks know the best, but they had a lot of serve the people programs, like healthcare clinics, they, I mean, they had over 70 different kinds of programs. The name of the program, people usually call them survival programs, but the full name that, that Huey Newton came up with was survival pending revolution programs. And I think keeping that whole title is something that is, is incredibly useful because it is understanding people have to survive. People have the ability and the means within our communities to, not, to survive and to thrive, but it, it, is on, it is part of us moving towards liberation. It's part of us moving towards these uh, just futures that we want. And so uh, I, I, you know, I think it's important because it, these issues are literally life and death to, to act on them. But it is important to say, how does this fit into a longer vision? Again, what's happening now is important and what's happening in 100 years is important. We actually have to think quantumly, right? We have to exist in multiple times at the same time as organizers, as people who want to change the world. And we have to recognize that when we are pushing back against oppressive systems, we are doing so to clear out enough space to build something new. We're not pushing back just to push back, right? We're pushing back because we need that space to build the futures that we want. And we, we, have, to, we have to take that step, second step. And we can't just say, we'll wait until we've pushed this back entirely and then do that. We actually, again, have to be time traveling and doing them back and forth fluidly at the same time. Hello. Um, I have a question that's not nearly as heavy. Um, so a large part of the horror genre has always been confronting with these very subtle fears that people may have, like, oh, clearly the Night of the Living Dead was about the Vietnam War. But the first time you watch it, you're just terrified. Right. And then you rewatch it, you have these conversations with friends, and then these like deeper archetypes that are really going on and that people are really fearful of are the message of the film, of the book, et cetera. Um, a lot of like what you spoke about today with the visionary uh, science fiction, it seems to be very rooted in the self, which I think is good. Like you need that deep work, you need that identity, you need that push forward. Um, but when you're confronting the other, right? When you are confronting someone in which they are reading this story and they're totally for the prison industrial complex, even though they don't recognize it as such. When you present them with those stories, what's the sort of response that you've seen or that other writers have encountered? Um, I'm not. I'm not sure that that's happened directly for me. I think. Um, I mean, I think some of what happens is that folks. I think you know, Mumia actually he wrote a piece for a an, a, a, 
I edited, a, I guess edited a section of a magazine and he wrote a piece about why black folks should write a, a science fiction. And he talked about the fact that, you know, science fiction is this place where folks are willing to go anywhere. And so if you try to talk to white folks about race, it is about them and they shut down, right? Because, they're, because we've been told if you're talking about race, you're going to say something's racist, which means I'm racist and I just, I'm done, right? But he's like, if we talk about blue people and green people and tell the exact same story on another planet, folks will be like, and then what happens next? Do the blue people rise up? Do they overthrow the oppressive green people, right? Um, and so I think I've found that that's part of the, the usefulness of science fiction is it allows folks to step step out and to go places and maybe not even realize they're going those places. I think the important thing is to then bring them back. And I think that a lot of, you know, mainstream science fiction that had the potential to be visionary fiction refused to bring folks back because um, that would make people unhappy and they, they were like, we want your money though. So like Hunger Games, you guys, so disappointing. I was so, oh, I was so disappointed. Um, but you know, I'm like, it's, it, it's mainstream, it is what it is and I, I take, Take, take what I can. Um, but, you know, I do think, you know, that process of bringing folks back, um, people have sometimes pushed back, but I think that it is such a, a different entry point that folks are, honestly, I think a lot of times folks leave, and I'm not with people like long term, so I don't go home with them and like, <laughs> then they're like, oh, I thought of the perfect thing to say to you. But I think a lot of times folks are just like, wait, what just happened? <laughs> you were talking about science, you were talking about this planet and this monster that eats people, and now we're talking about prison evolution? <laughs> like, what is happening? Um, and I think then folks go and process that however they process it. So they often, in the moment, aren't uh, raising the, the shields back up immediately. So I think it, it is, it's been helpful because it helps destabilize folks' kind of worldview. Um, enough that there's an opportunity, whether or not people take that opportunity at the end of the day is up to them. But I do think it's important as well to recognize that, you know, we, we need these stories as well. So, you know, it's not just about convincing people who, you know, are diametrically opposed to all of the principles and values we have that we're, we're right. And I think this, is, this will be my last rant of the night, y'all. That, you know, the, the term preaching to the choir, I really hate that that term because I think what it does is indicate that that growth and um, and sort of self-realization and involvement have an end right that once you reach the choir you're done you're good I'm like I, I see what the choir be doing they need a little preaching because I saw them at Saturday night at the club too right um, but you know I think the thing is is our you know our movements our lives our communities are so fractal, complex, multifaceted that there will never be an end to the joyous process of exploring and learning. And I think that these stories for me, I, I feel like if, if folks who are diametrically opposed read them and feel some revelation or interest, that's great. But for me, it's, it is really about um, saying how, how can we explore and express this in as many ways as possible? And how can we sustain our hearts and our souls and our hope when everything is trying to destroy that? So thank you all so much, really appreciate it. Um,